Hold on. I'll pause it. Okay, now it's louder. Now we can pray. Father, thank you so much for today, Lord, and that we get to gather and just, again, worship you and learn uh, from your word. God, I ask that you would now just bless our time. Um, give us understanding and wisdom, Lord, in Christ's name I pray. Amen. I'm going to have to be really loud. Is that better? Somewhat? Okay. So, as you guys know, this is the apologetics class, right? So we're studying on how to defend the Bible, how to defend the gospel, give evidence for what we believe. Well, and then it dawned on me, do we even know what the actual gospel is? Right? I mean, we talk about sharing the gospel, but what does that look like? And last week we had a couple of examples of um, praises and, and great events that have happened sharing the gospel and, and epic failures, like, you know, my story of the airplane, right? So, what is the actual gospel? If anyone's brave enough, see one of our college kids here, did you have a chance to share the gospel or your testimony yet? You did testimony? Do you want to be brave and do gospel or no? <laughs> okay, no worries. So, what we do in college group and Blake Institute is really, really cool. We'll have one person share their testimony, one person share the gospel, like how they present the gospel each week. And it's really, really neat to see how each of us are, are different. But here's the deal. The American gospel versus the actual gospel of the scripture sometimes are differing very, very radically from each other. Let me explain. So what then is the actual biblical gospel? Is it that if you accept Christ, it's going to lead you into a more happy or fulfilled life? No. Is it that Jesus is going to end all of your financial woes? No. So I have some quotes from R.C. Sproul here. There is no greater message to be heard than that which we call the gospel. But as important as that is, it's often given to massive distortions or oversimplifications. People think they're preaching the gospel to you when they tell you you can have a purpose in life or that you can have meaning to your life or that you can have a personal relationship with Jesus. All those things are true and they're important, but they don't get to the actual heart of the gospel. The gospel is called the good news because it addresses the most serious problem that you and I have as human beings. And that problem is simply this. God is holy and he is just and I am not. And at the end of my life, I'm going to stand before a just and a holy God and I'll be judged. I'll be judged either on the basis of my own righteousness or lack of it or the righteousness of another. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus lived a life of perfect righteousness and perfect obedience to God, not for his own well-being, but for us, his people. He has done for me what I could not possibly do for myself. But not only has he lived that life of perfect obedience, he offered himself as a perfect sacrifice to satisfy the justice and the righteousness of God. The great misconception of our day is this, that God isn't concerned to protect his own integrity. He's a kind of wishy-washy deity who just waves a wand of forgiveness over everybody. No. For God to forgive you is a very costly matter. It cost the sacrifice of his own son. So valuable was that sacrifice 
that God pronounced it valuable enough by raising him from the dead so that Christ died for us and he was raised for our justification. So the gospel is something objective. You get that? Not subjective. It is the message of who Jesus is and what he did. It also has a subjective dimension. How are the benefits of Jesus subjectively appropriated to us? How do I get it? The Bible makes it clear that we're justified not by our works, nor by our efforts, but by our, nor by our deeds, but by faith, and by faith alone. The only way you can receive the benefit of Christ's life and death is by putting your trust in Him and Him alone. You do that, you're declared just by God and you're adopted into His family. You're forgiven of all your sins and you've begun your pilgrimage into eternity. So, I wanted to go over a little bit, well, a lot of it, the gospel and what it looks like sharing to the most difficult audience I think I can imagine. Do you guys think the most difficult audience is your loved ones and friends or strangers? I agree. I think it's extremely difficult sharing the gospel with those whom you have a very intimate relationship with. Because, let's face it, if you're sharing Christ with somebody on the street, like doing fair ministry or something like that, chances are you're never going to see this person again. So you don't run the risk of potentially destroying this entire relationship you have or making Thanksgiving dinners very, very awkward, right? So the heart of the gospel really is, in my opinion, in the book of Romans. Paul really, really lays it out. We're not going to go through all of Romans. Don't worry. <laughs> not today. But I do want to start with a couple key points, and I'll read some passages. Because as Americans, when we share the gospel or preach the gospel with people, we tend to focus on that subjective element, that Christ is going to make you happy, um, that somehow you're going to feel a more fulfilled life, or that your pain is going to stop with whatever pain it is that you're feeling. That's not the actual gospel of the scriptures. What does Paul start out with when he talks about the gospel in Romans chapter 1? Well, right here, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has already shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and that things that are made, so that they are without excuse. What's Paul's point here? The first part is, the wrath of God is on us already. Why? Why is the wrath of God already on us? Because we've already broken his laws. What's the next thing? He's already answering that age-old objection. What about those who have never heard? What's his answer? That's a lie. Everyone has already heard. Let me put it very, very plainly. No one ever goes to hell because of not hearing about Christ. They go to hell because they're sinners and they deserve to, according to Paul period. He's saying you look outside, the invisible attributes of God in creation are clearly seen. You can't make that excuse, but I've never heard. Paul says that is a completely invalid argument, and he goes on about our own heart here. For although they knew God in our hearts, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Well, how true is that, right? We, we worship created things more than the creator, whether it be our own intelligence, our own science, actually building um, idols, whatever it ends up being. Now, Paul's delving even deeper into the darkness of our hearts. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves 
because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Right? Paul gets even deeper in this. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now I'm going to stop there a bit. The reason why I want to stop there, I know you have a homosexual son, right? So do we, our oldest. Anyone else have a homosexual loved one? No, just us? Okay. The reason why I wanted to stop there is because when we deal with the homosexual community, at least in our own experience, let me know if it's true in yours, their overwhelming uh, rejection or uh, complaint against Christianity is that they have to go to hell because of something that they have no choice for. They're saying, it's my sexual orientation, I was born this way, and how can your God send me to hell like that? And those conversations, he made me this way. And those conversations, obviously for those whom we love, are extremely, extremely difficult. One of the great misnomers of friendship evangelism, basically not the, the street ministry stuff, is the idea that it's more difficult to witness to strangers than to people whom you have a developed and committed relationship with. Again, I, I, I disagree. I think those conversations with your loved ones are infinitely harder. When asked who are the most difficult people to reach in their sphere of influence, most Christians say that it's friends and family. And there's several reasons for this. Family and friends are those that know us best. So many Christians refrain from spiritual conversation with them because they fear as being labeled as hip hypocrites. How sad is that? That our life isn't matching what we're trying to share with those whom we love. They're like, oh, but you, last week, were doing this. Family and friends are more comfortable giving Christians a sharp retort or an angry response. Yeah, that's for sure. I don't think, except for that lady on the airplane, um, plane, <laughs> I've been treated as harshly for sharing the gospel as I have with sharing it with friends and loved ones. I mean, they're instantly um, more willing to give a, an extremely sharp rebuke. Christians also are very fearful of, a re of the replications that they may face as a result of sharing the gospel. Unlike with the stranger, the Christian may only see once in a lifetime a family member, you see him all the time. And most of all, Christians are fearful of doing anything to jeopardize the friendship or relationship they hard, worked hard to cultivate. So how, how do we have those difficult, difficult conversations with our friends and our loved ones who are unsaved, whom we're trying to share the gospel with? Think about it. Doesn't it sound rather disrespectful? Because if I'm going to talk to some random stranger on the street and I'm going to present the gospel, how does it start out with? Well, number one, it starts out with the law. I need to start with showing that this individual that you are indeed a sinner. You have broken God's law. How's that going to work out if you're a 17-year-old kid with grandma? You're going to sit down, hey, grandma, did you know that you are uh, a lying, thieving, adulterous blasphemer at heart? What? I mean, is that going to end well? That's why these conversations are a lot more difficult with our friends and with our loved ones. It's important to notice or, or to take note that we're not having those interactions with a stranger. So your conversation has to, by its very nature, be different. Does, does that make sense? Okay. Everything 
you would say to a stranger on the street regarding the law and the gospel, in essence, you should say it to a friend or a family member, but you're not going to say it the same way. The content of your message, meaning the law and the gospel, should be the same with each and every lost person, regardless of your relationship. Remember, the power of your evangelistic effort isn't in your own personality. It isn't in your skill and apologetics to answer all those questions, your ability, your friendliness, any of that stuff. The power of the evangelistic effort is in the actual message itself, not the deliverer. Let me say that one more time again for the recording. The power for a soul to get saved is in the message itself, not the one who is preaching it, period. It stands alone by itself. Think on that for a bit. If the message itself is the authority and the power to save, why are we so afraid and so nervous on how we present it? We shouldn't be, but I know I am. After so many times of sharing the gospel with friends, family members, strangers on the street, still same thing. You get that shaking and your voice starts trembling, the whole bit. But what did Paul say in verse 16 of Romans 1? I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now here's the key part. And I'm going to give a, a story um, to go along with this. Okay, Some of us have experienced this. Some of us have not. Do you guys think that someone's eternal security, where they end up with eternity, is a very important topic. I do too. Do you guys think it should be presented at all costs? Do you guys think someone's destination of their soul is of the utmost and highest importance? So here's the difficult part. With these conversations, you must be willing to sacrifice the relationship for the soul of your friend or your family member. It happens. What did Jesus say in Luke 14? If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Is Christ saying that we have to actually hate our family members? No. He's saying that the realization of their soul and sharing the gospel and what that may do to that relationship at that time should far outweigh whatever you think is going to happen here on earth with uh, keeping that relationship open. Now, here's the story. Okay, I mentioned our oldest son is gay. Living up in Seattle, you know, whole everything that the world has to do with that. I'm going to go a little bit more in this. Let's just kind of show the sovereignty of God in here. 16 when he started, right? 16. Uh, he came out of course, and we're saying that that is not an okay lifestyle choice. It's not. So in comes uh, accusations by him to Child Protective Services, saying that we are religious fanatics. We locked him in his room, basically forced him to watch anti-gay propaganda, beat him for being gay, all of this stuff. We end up finding an attorney, because now he's taking us to court, okay? Um, to sue us for emancipation rights at 16, 17 now. Um, now he's taking us to court. Now, the attorney at this point, my, my wife is a wreck, right? This is her son. And the attorney looks her square in the eye and says, are you the tether to your son's salvation? No. 
I'm not responsible for my son's salvation. He says, then what are you trying to fight for? Well, that's a very good point. Now, here's the sovereignty of God that I find rather interesting. I don't know the whole story or why this has happened yet, but I just talked to that attorney. This happened how many years ago? Nine years. Nine years ago? I just talked to that attorney during first service. He now comes to our church. This is an attorney up in Lacey. Why would he be coming here now, of all things? doesn't make any sense. So that happens after that. It had been years before we had seen or heard from him. Relationship was gradually restored at that point. But on a um, facade, you know, like a superficial type of level where it's just everyone in, in our whole family has to walk on eggshells because, oh, no, you don't want to offend Chandler or, or start a rift or start a fight with any of them. It happened in June again um, at our niece's graduation party from high school. So a conversation was begun, which he was vehemently opposed to because here we are, 16, 17 of us, all believers and followers of Christ, and he's the one out. Now, the interesting part is, in this conversation, he's bringing up what's true in his mind, right? Remember what I said last week? It's not them that are the enemy, it's who's standing behind them, because they are absolutely ensnared and enslaved by who is controlling them at this point. So he's bringing up this whole thing about how we, the whole family, are abusers and, and, and all of this and that. We're just horrible, horrible people because we're Christians. So. We have two options. We can just sit and be quiet and remain in fellowship, not fellowship, sorry, um, contact with him, have him still a, a part of our lives, or we can speak up and actually share the gospel at the risk of potentially never seeing him again. Our other son and daughter chose to do that very, very lovingly. At this point, uh, I think most of us are just hurt and angry but what started the conversation was the teaching of critical race theory which i believe one of the most racist things i've ever seen come out of the public schools it's crazy anyways the whole point was he was saying and i brought this up a little bit last week that yes it's a good thing that critical race theory should be taught it's a good thing that we should feel guilty about being born our particular race it's a good thing that monuments to slave owners such as General Lee or Jackson be torn down and ripped apart. To which our other son said, is it wrong, Chandler, to own slaves? He was astounded by that answer. What do you, what? How can you even ask that question? Ask it again. Why is it wrong to own another human being? Because it is. Why? That's a horrible thing. Why? Walker answered with, I believe it is too, but the reasons behind it are vastly different from your reasons. I believe that each and individual human being has a special intrinsic purpose, a created act from God, which makes you inherently valuable, not in of your own merit, but by whom you were created by. And that's why it's an evil thing to own and enslave another human being. His answer was he believes that the worth comes from himself. He defines his own self-worth. But at this point, as hard and hurtful as it was, we're so proud of our son and daughter because they are sharing the actual gospel of Christ. Of course, he brings up uh, being gay. Who cares? That, that doesn't matter about any of it. 
the point that matters is that you have just denied Christ. And they tell him, I am scared for your soul. Because without Christ, one is destined for hell. Period. There's, there's no salvation. Neither is there salvation in any other name by which we must be saved. Acts chapter 3. And that's that. Will we ever hear from him again? Lord, we pray so. We absolutely pray so. But the difficult part of that is our son and daughter at that point were so loving in order to look at his eternal soul rather than to never have conversation with their brother again. They saw at that moment, young kids, 22 and 20, young kids, they had that forethought that his eternal destination is far more important than anything we can do. Thanksgivings, Christmases, birthdays, whatever, hanging out. So how do we share the gospel and how do we witness to our family members? Just like they did. You preach the gospel. We can't be concerned about the potential severing of that relationship. Remember, it is not us that they are offended by. It is not us that they are yelling at. It is not us that they don't want to have any part of. It's the Holy Spirit and the Christ in us that they don't want to have any part of because of remember who is standing behind them and who is ensnaring and enslaving them, right? You guys have heard me talk about Ray Comfort. He does the, uh, what's called the way of the master. And I love how he does it because especially when it comes to the homosexual community, we encounter that not only with our oldest son, but we encounter it a lot in our prison ministry with Prisoners for Christ at Juvie, quite a bit, okay? And that's usually the overwhelming thing. You mean I'm going to hell because of my sexual choice? No, you are going to hell, yes, but it's not solely because of your sexual choice. Okay, men here, were you guys born with the innate, almost just without even trying ability to lust after women that walk by you? Yep, that's my, I, I was born that way and I can't change that. So how is that my excuse because of my sexual orientation, I should be sent to hell because I can't change it. It's not my fault, right? I'm gonna read a little bit from Romans again because I love what Paul says and then we're gonna look at this video with Ray Comfort. It's in chapter six, I believe. Nope, sorry. Because I love how Paul answers this, especially in Romans, because he gives what's called a diatribe, right? And he um, anticipates what your objections are going to be, and then he answers it. Okay. If you guys remember Romans, um, starting right around in, in chapter 9, Paul's dealing with a difficult subject. He's talking about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, right? And he's talking about God having the ability to harden or to have mercy on whom he'll have mercy. And Paul says in 9.14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. So then it doesn't depend on human will exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very reason I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, 
and he hardens whomever he wills. And Paul's answer here in verse 19, he's already picturing where we're going. You're going to say to me then, why does he still find fault? If he's the one behind the scenes, hardening whomever he wants to harden, having mercy on whomever he wants to have mercy, why is it my problem that he still holds me accountable for my sins? For who can resist his will? And then Paul's answer is pretty simple, but it's profound. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Shall the things formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me this way? Doesn't the potter have power to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? That's the point. The point is, in all of this, whether we understand it or not, God is sovereign. In our pain, God is sovereign. In those severed relationships, God is absolutely sovereign. Do we trust in that sovereignty of God? Do we trust him in the sovereignty of the salvation of our loved ones or potentially not? Yeah, we do. Is it an easy concept to grasp? No, not by any stretch of any imagination. Obviously not, because we know so many Christians who have dealt with homosexuality within the family, and that they've actually changed their way of thinking yes. to accommodate the lifestyle of their loved one. Yep. For those listening uh, at home on the recording, what my wife said, uh, obviously not. We don't trust in the sovereignty of God because we have, not we personally, but we have fellow Christians, and three just popped into my mind. We're probably thinking of the same ones, um, that have had homosexual children or other loved ones, and they have now changed either their theology or their entire family dynamic to be quote-unquote accepting of this person's sexual choices. That is a travesty. Because why is it a travesty? Am I saying that, you know, uh, we need to be just complete zealots like the crazy Westboro Baptists, you know, hanging the picket signs, God hates fags kind of people. Do you guys see those crazies? That is not the gospel, folks. That's horrible. That's absolutely a travesty that someone would do that in the name of Christ. Did Christ do that? No, if anything, if Christ showed that much anger to, who was it to? The religious leaders. It wasn't to the sinners. It was the ones in authority. Well, I mean, they were sinners, but you know what I'm getting at. It wasn't to the lay sinners, and that's nuts. But without further ado, we're going to take a look at Ray Comfort here. It, um, I'm going to play and pause at the, the same time because I want to discuss what Ray is doing here because I absolutely love it. Nope, let me turn it up. And this is how a lot of our movies get. I understand you're not trying to make me feel dumb. Yep. Or, you know, you, you actually care about me. things to believe them, so right now I am open to the idea of there being an afterlife and a higher power, but uh, for, uh, at the moment right now I don't. How old are you? I'm 22. Okay, you've been here 22 years. 23 years ago you didn't exist, so you're here. How do you rate life out of 10? Six right now? Seven and a half, eight. I'd say it's about a seven. A two? Two? Sometimes it's sad. It's um, mostly like a seven or eight. Sometimes it's really good. Do you ever get suicidal thoughts? Mm, not really, but like I just sometimes don't. Not suicidal, but like sometimes I just don't want to be here. Cause get depressed? Yes. What causes your depression? Um, various things. I think like just myself, maybe. You really don't know, do you? Yeah, I don't really know. Do you ever get depressed? Oh, I've been depressed for since I was a kid. Yeah. You get suicidal thoughts? Uh, yeah. 
Experts don't know. World Health Organization says 350 million people suffer from depression. They don't know what causes it, and they don't know how to cure it. Are you afraid of dying? Yes, yeah, but I've tried to not be, I've tried to think about it often so that I'm not like worried about that or scared. Doesn't help, does it? Uh, a little bit. <laughs> I've got an appointment with the Grim Reaper, and there seems to be nothing we can do about it, and that's depressing. It drives many people to suicide, because it makes life futile. We live in a generation that says, we're the results of an explosion in space, there's no God, we're mere primates, therefore there's no rhyme or reason to life or death, and they've got no hope in their death. What are you studying at the school? I'm um, studying administration and justice. However I live my life now is how I will be in my afterlife, so my main goal is to be at peace and be happy. So happiness is the main issue with you? For sure, happiness is the key to life. Okay, so if you found a wallet with a thousand dollars in it and somebody's name in it, and it made you happy to keep it, would you keep it? I would give it back to the person who it belongs to. So, righteousness is more important than happiness, isn't that right? Uh, you can say they're along the same line. Well, no, one trumps the other. A man can be happy raping a woman. A man can be happy visiting prostitutes. A man can be happy robbing banks if he gets away with it. Happiness shouldn't be the issue. Righteousness should be the issue. Doing that which is right. Wouldn't you agree? Righteousness is correct. I can definitely agree with that. Do you Okay, do you guys notice what Ray is doing there? How is he starting his gospel presentation to these folks? Is he, he's asking them about depression, right? He's asking them about their despair. Is he then leading into, Christ can take all that away? Nope, not at all. Where is he going with this? A need, right, let them answer it, and a need for a savior. This, uh, the one before him, that young man, that was awesome, right? Because a lot of people that you talk to, you give that wallet analogy to, they'll have the same answer. They, oh, I would give it back to the, its rightful owner. You know, and they have also the same answer, that happiness is the key to life. And Ray's saying, well, you just said justice is the key to life. Retribution, to be just and righteous, that is the key to life, which he finally agreed to, right? You're gonna notice some very, very difficult conversations and these are the types of conversations that we're going to have with our loved ones and with people on the street and sharing the gospel today. It is a different world, folks, right? It's very, very different. So I'm gonna continue. God's existence? Mm, kind of, not really. What makes you not believe in God? Um, bad things that happen. Do you think that's a good reason not to believe in God? Mm. Let me tell you why it's not, it's not sensible to think like that. If I purchased a brand new car and I thought, boy, this is a great car, it's beautifully made, I show some friends and say, look how the makers have done such a wonderful job, and then the brakes fail and I crash and there's terrible suffering, people get killed. So I say to myself, nobody made this car. That doesn't make sense. Instead of saying nobody made the car, I should say something went wrong with the car. And when you look around, you can see the genius of God's creative hand and flowers and birds and trees and seasons and puppies and kittens, the marvels of a human eye, male and female and all the species, the warmth of the sun, the blueness of the sky, its seasons. All these things show us the genius of God's creative hand. Okay, I absolutely love that analogy. As an apologist, I had never heard of that analogy until last night when Dev and I first watched this video. It's amazing because how many times do you guys hear that? Well, I can't believe in God because a bunch of bad stuff happens in the world. And I love his analogy. I buy this beautiful Bentley or whatever car this is. The brakes go out. I kill a soccer mom, you know, and full of her seven kids in her van. 
Do I then say, well, nobody made the car because look at the evil it caused or that happened because of its existence? Well, that's a very silly argument and it doesn't make any sense. And that's what I've... What's that? I would blame the person who made the car. Right? Yeah, that's where the analogy breaks down. I know. I was thinking about that last night, Gabe. I'm going to repeat for those listening online. We would blame the person or the designer who made the faulty car. Yes, the analogy does break down at that point. We'll deal with that later if someone actually asks that. <laughs> they will or, or they won't. I don't know. But the, but the idea is, and that's been the, the major problem with that argument, right? The problem of evil, it's called is just because evil exists in the world, it doesn't disprove that God himself exists, right? Just as that car crashing and, oh yes. I think I know the answer. Yeah. It's not about who made the car and the brakes don't work. It's about you're driving the car and you cause an accident. Right. So it's not the maker of the car's fault that it was misused. Right. So we're the ones that misuse this earth and right, all the havoc that's rained. It's not, it's, it's, it's human choice. Yep. You know, you drank, drinking and driving or Yay! you weren't paying attention or something, or you were driving too fast for conditions. Yep. And you crash, you know. That's it's, absolutely it's true. Human. So it's not, but it's not the maker of the car's fault. Yep. That's where you, that's where you change the analogy. Yep. If somebody's driving drunk in a well-built car, right. and they cause an accident, then the maker of the car doesn't exist. That's where that would be a better yeah. analogy. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. To kill people. Right. right. You know, and um, <laughs> to to put it in another way, um, whether or not someone is for or against owning firearms at this point is irrelevant, right? Um, I'm a concealed weapons permit holder. I carry a firearm most of the times. My wife and I just got back from a 14-day road trip across seven states, which I carried my firearm, and guess what? The entire time, it didn't kill anybody. Imagine that. The object in and of itself. Yeah, Tim? Signs and wonders. Signs and wonders, I know. The object in and of itself holds no evil without the person in control of it, right? And I like that, and that's what we can use with our... So we're going to twist that. So if you guys are taking notes, and those at home listening are taking notes, that's going to be one of our analogies that we're going to use in witnessing to people is that car analogy, but kind of twisting it that if someone is drunk driving in a very well-built car, and then the car itself somehow kills somebody, then it is the maker's fault. But at that point, it isn't the maker's fault, but at that point, it's the drunk driver behind the wheel, right? But when things go wrong, we see terrible things happen like tornadoes and hurricanes and cancerous diseases and death. We shouldn't say, oh, therefore nobody made everything. We should say, something went terribly wrong. Do you know what's wrong with humanity? Any idea? If you could put your finger on what is wrong with this world, what would you say it is? Anger. Anger. Sadness. Do you know why we die? What does the Bible say about death? Any idea? No, I don't read the Bible. Well, the Bible is the instruction book for humanity. If you ever bought a device and you can't figure out how to work it, then you look at the instruction book and you think I should look at the instruction book first. Well, that's what we've done with the instruction book. The Bible is the instruction book for humanity. It tells us why we die. It says the wages of sin is death. Do you know what that means? No. I don't believe that there is a person who created everything and then decided to make this book of rules. The Bible says God requires moral accountability, and that's what 
upsets us. God tells us what we should do and what we shouldn't do. Because we get a lot of pleasure out of fornication, sex before marriage, pornography, homosexuality, adultery. And God says it's wrong. I, I know the night that I got confronted with the words of Jesus many years ago, I read in the Bible, you've heard it said by them of old, you shall not commit adultery. And I thought, well, what does it heaven? Since the judgment day, I'm fine, I've never committed adultery. And then I read the words, but I say to you, whoever looks upon a woman to lust for her has committed adultery already with her in his heart. And I went, no! And it wasn't because I felt bad, it was because God was saying what I love to do was wrong. I mean, guys look for lust, it's instant pleasure. In my surfing days, I had to dangle my feet as shark bait to get pleasure, go out there and surf among the sharks, but with lust, was instantaneous, daily, just a quick look, and well, she's nice, love to go to bed with her. And it was pleasurable, but it was wrong in God's eyes. Carlos, if I was to say to you, I've got some great news for you, someone just paid a huge fine that you couldn't pay to save you go to prison, you'd probably say, what are you talking about? I haven't broken the law, that's just stupid. But if I took the time to show you you had violated the law on your way to school today, you drove through a blind children's convention that said 10 miles an hour was maximum speed, you went through at 60 miles an hour, so you're in big trouble. You're going to jail or paying a massive fine. And then I said to you, someone's paid the fine, you say, oh, that's good news, that's great, thank you. So the good news only makes sense if you understand you've violated the law. I'm going to make you feel uncomfortable. Can you handle that? Sure. And what about you? Are you secure? Yes. Okay. Do you think you're a good person? Yes. And what about you? Yes. Is God happy with you or angry at you? God is good with me all the time. I believe God is happy with me. I believe I'm a great person. Our only good person? Yes. So I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on the stand. We're gonna have a little court case here. I'll be the prosecutor, you be the defendant, and then we'll see how you plead in a minute. How many lies have you told in your life? Um Chuck Norris style, all of them. <laughs> what do you call someone who tells lies? A uh, liar. So what are you? A liar. Do you still think you're a good person? Of course. 1,500. What do you call someone who's told 1,500 lies? A liar. Now, have you lied? Yes. So you're a liar also? Yes. Have you ever stolen something, even if it's small? Mm, no. Nope. Have you ever used God's name in vain? Oh, constantly. I say, oh my, I don't know, but I'm, I'm saying, I'm not saying it to respect you. Would you use your mother's name as a cuss word? I do. Oh, that's terrible. You know, you're commanded to honor your father and mother, no matter what they've done. And Raul, Jesus said, if you look at a woman and lust for her, you commit adultery with her in your heart. Have you ever looked at a woman with lust? All the time. I look, ooh. Have you had sex before now? All the time. So, Raul, you're not a good person. You're like the rest of us. I'm not judging you. You're a self-admitted liar. I can't believe you're not a thief because you told me you're a liar. You're a blasphemer, a fornicator, and an adulterer at heart. And you're self-righteous because you think you're a good person when you're not. You're like the rest of us. And you're idolater because your understanding of God is incorrect. It's a violation of the first and the second of the Ten Commandments. I was an idolater before I was a Christian. What I did is I made up my own concept of God, my own image of God. I created a God that was kind of like a celestial Santa Claus, a, um, a uh, divine butler who came running when I clicked my fingers. But God is nothing like we imagine it would be. He's perfect and holy and righteous. And the Bible says His wrath abides on you. In fact, you're an enemy of God in your mind through wicked works. Evidenced by the fact you use His name as a cusswear. Have you ever locked with lust? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Have you had sex before marriage? 
All the time. Definitely. <laughs> now Jesus said, if you look with lust, you commit adultery in the heart. Have you ever looked at a woman with lust? I don't like women. Have you ever looked at a man with lust? Uh, yes. I'm going to be guilty, but every human is. So ladies, I'm not judging you, but both, both of you just told me you're lying, thieving, blasphemous, fornicating, adulterers at heart, and you have to face God on Judgment Day. If he judges you by those ten commandments, which we've looked at four of them, would you be innocent or guilty? Depending on who it is up there judging me, or if there is a Judgment Day, or who knows if I'm just going to turn into speckles of dust and I have to stay here on Earth and I become a ghost and haunt people, who knows? But... Um, even if I were to be judged, I think that there is a lot more evil in the world that would be worse than what I've done. Of course, Hitler killed 11 million people, so would you be innocent or guilty? I'd say innocent. Lying, thieving, fornicating, blasphemous, adulterate heart. What about you, innocent or guilty? Absolutely guilty, but didn't Jesus love prostitutes and care about them? Yeah, that's a really good question. So all of us would be guilty. You'd be guilty. I'd be guilty. Guilty is sin. If you're guilty on Judgment Day, would you go to heaven or hell? Definitely go to hell. And what about you? Well, because I didn't say that I was guilty, I'd probably go to limbo. Well, actually, it's not true. If you're in court and you won't admit your guilt, the judge will still send you to prison. You'll probably for longer if you don't admit your guilt, because he knows you're being unreasonable and unrepentant. The Bible says all liars are of their part in the lake of fire. We don't think sin is very serious, but God certainly does. We trivialize sin. We say, oh, I just stole little things. Everyone does it. Who doesn't fornicate? Who doesn't lust? But death is evidence that God is serious about sin. What do you believe? Uh, well, I don't know. Like I said, I'm open to it. Well, then you're open. Let me tell you what the Bible says. The Bible says all liars of their part in the lake of fire. No thief, no blasphemer, no homosexual, no adulterer, no fornicator. And I'm here at God's kingdom. So you're in big trouble on Judgment Day. You've violated God's law. You're up the river Niagara without a paddle, and if you die in your sins, you'll end up in hell. Does that concern you? Well, if that's where I'm going to end up, then I will gladly accept that. If I'm going to go to hell just for something I cannot change, being my sexuality, then, you know, by all means, send me down under. Oh, please don't say that. I, I love you, I care about you, and the thought of you, Carlos, a human being in hell, hell, horrifies me. You know, you're of great value to God. He sent his son to suffer and die on the cross, so you wouldn't have been up in hell. According to the Bible, what is death? Well, I don't know. It's wages. Do you remember that verse? The wages of sin is death? No, actually. I don't remember that. But it's Romans 6.23. Death is wages paid from God to you for your sins. In the same way, a judge would look at heinous criminals, rape three young ladies, slit their throats. He says, you've earned the death sentence. This is what's due to you. This is your wages. You're going to the electric chair. And God says, sin is so serious in his eyes. But it won't sin. Adultery, fornication, lying, and stealing, etc. It's so serious. It demands the death sentence. Are you asking me whether I believe that's okay for that? Well, I don't think any of us do. No criminal is excited about being given the death sentence. But remember what I was telling you, how the good news doesn't make sense until you realize you've violated the law? Well, you and I broke God's law. Jesus paid the fine and full. That's what happened on the cross. The Ten Commandments are called the moral law. And when Jesus suffered and died, just before he died, do you remember what he said? What do you think? It is finished. 
That's a strange thing to say just before you die. It is finished, but you're saying the debt has been paid. Carlos, if you're in court and someone pays you fine, the judge can let you go. Even though you're guilty, you can say, Carlos, this is a of speeding price here. This is deadly serious, but someone's paid only for you to come. You can do that, which is legal. You turn it up a little, I can't hear it. Yeah. And even though all of us are guilty of all sorts of sins, crimes against us all, God can dismiss our case, let us live forever, actually take the death sentence off us, guilty though we are, and legally allow us to live forever, all because Jesus paid the fine in his life's blood on that cross and rose again on the third day. So if you can seriously see your sin, that you've broken that law, then that good news becomes the best news you can ever hope to hear. If you deny your sins and oh, I don't think I'm a lawbreaker, plenty of people worse than me, I only took little things, lust, everyone lusts, etc., then you'll never see the good news of God offering everlasting life as being good at all. It's just that stupid. And then Jesus rose from the dead and defeated death. The Bible says it was not possible for death to hold him. And if you'll repent of all sin, lying, stealing, fornication, blasphemy, lust, adultery, homosexuality, everything God says is wrong, he says, I'll forgive you and I'll create a new heart in you that loves righteousness. He'll give you a personal miracle. You'll pass from death to life and you'll have a knowledge that when you die, death has no power over you because your sins are forgiven, you're cleansed, and your trust is not in yourself but in your Savior, Jesus Christ. And when I pass through death, and it's going to happen pretty soon, I know, spring chicken, I have no fear as much as I have faith in God. In the same way, if I have faith in a parachute when I jump, I've got no fear. 100% faith, no fear. No parachute, terrible, because you're going to hit the ground at 120 miles an hour. Parachute and faith in the parachute, land on your feet at five miles an hour. So when I pass through death, no fear. And though I pass through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. And so that's a wonderful thing. So wonderful you want to share it even with complete strangers because you love them and you care about what you're spending time. Carlos, you have been just so gracious to me and listening. I know you've disagreed on a lot of points that I've made. You're genuine and you're... Okay, I'm going to stop the video there because we're going to run out of time. We've got four minutes left. But a couple things with his interaction with Carlos that I want to point out, especially the one part where Carlos had said, you know, fine, yep, I'm, I'm condemned to hell. If it's not my choice, my sexuality, I'm condemned to hell. I'm happy to go there. It is what it is. How many of us, myself included at that point, be like, yep, that's your choice, and then just kind of walk off or end the conversation there? What did Ray do? I, exactly. That was the most Christ-like interaction I think I've ever seen in that type of scenario. He said, please don't say that. You are a human, and the thought of any human burning and suffering in hell just horrifies me. He didn't end the conversation and be like, well, yeah, that's your choice. I, I agree with you. You know, peace out kind of deal. That was absolutely amazing how he was able to convey that. And how is he able to convey that? It's the actual love of Christ. And that's where it becomes important, at least in my view, of having correct doctrine, correct theology, right, in our understanding of the scriptures, because when we're interacting with those people, how does Ray have this much conviction? Because he absolutely knows hell is real. He absolutely knows what it is like. He absolutely knows what the love of God is like. He knows what heaven and eternity and glory is going to be like. How does he know that? Through study of scripture, through study of the word, right? And that's the point I promise we'll get into all that juicy stuff. You know, how can he know the Bible is the actual word of God? How do you know it's accurate? All that stuff. We will get into that stuff. But do you notice in any of these conversations that Ray had with these people, did any of them start bringing up 
the authority and inspiration of scripture? Did anyone bring up evolution? Did anyone bring up, they really didn't. Yes, it has a place in those conversations with people and you will have those conversations, especially the long drawn out, you know, two, three hour conversations. Yeah, you're gonna have those. But the main point that people bring up with is they just don't want to be held accountable for their own sin. They don't want anyone to tell them what they are doing is wrong. And here's the key point. Did Ray himself tell anyone what they were doing is wrong? No, he kept saying the Bible says, and he would quote scripture. He didn't, even when he disagreed with them, even when they came to crazy answers like that gal on the right, when he just asked her, are you going to be guilty? When she just admitted that she's a lying, thieving, adulterous, blasphemer, self-righteous person at heart, and she said, well, I'm, I'm probably going to be innocent because I'm a good person. Right? I mean, wouldn't that be our normal reaction? What? I mean, do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth at this point? But Ray didn't say that. He was still so gracious and still had the same demeanor and asked her. And then he turned it around. He's saying, well, that's not true because in the court of law, right? And he brought it instead of saying your argument is stupid, or you yourself are stupid, or, make, or feeling, uh, making them feel degraded or, or somehow downplayed in their arguments or in their feelings. He always brings it back to scripture, and which is what we're always gonna do. You know, we're gonna uh, focus on that. Yeah, we have a lot of science, we have a lot of philosophy, we have a lot of logic um, that proves the scriptures and the Bible to be true, but I wanna focus on that, right? So few arguments are actually given based on their research or what they think is fact. Right. It's emotional and experiential. Yep. And that's what you're arguing about. And that can't be rationalized. That can't be argued with because it's their emotions. It's their experience. However, the Bible is factual. And to then argue with emotions or feelings with the Bible, one can't right. argue. And that's the saving grace of the gospel. No pun intended. Well, maybe a pun intended. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's literally the saving grace of the gospel because is Ray going to go home? Nobody prayed the sinner's prayer, whatever that is. We don't find that in scripture. We'll get into that one later. Nobody, you know, came to the altar of repentance or any of that stuff in, in Ray's day here, uh, the day he spent witnessing um, down at the beach. But do you think Ray is going to go home feeling de defeated because, oh, I didn't, win any arguments or I didn't convince someone to get to get saved. No, because like I said at the beginning, the fruit of our evangelistic efforts is in the message itself. That is God's responsibility to save. We are under that command to go out and preach, period. That is what our job is. The salvation comes from the Lord. It doesn't come from us. We don't have that authority, right? I said that last week, to argue someone into the kingdom of heaven, it doesn't, doesn't work. It really doesn't work. And you'll beat your head against the wall. You really will. Like we did with our oldest. What are we doing wrong? How come they aren't coming to repentance? How come they're not getting saved? How come, how come, how come? We can, we, we can go, you know, ad infinitum in, in here, right? To why isn't this person responding? Why isn't this person getting saved? I don't know. That's God's deal. All I know is my faithfulness is in just preaching the gospel. And preaching the gospel with love, mercy, and compassion, just as Christ did, as Ray is showing. I mean, think about the woman at the well, right? That's one of the best examples of Christ preaching the gospel so mercifully. Here, I think about everything that's going on. I'll close with this, uh, of the woman at the well, okay? 
Jesus had just gotten done with preaching and feeding, and I mean, he's, he's peopled out, probably, okay? And he just wants to go sit, get a cool drink of water, and hang out by himself. He even left the, the disciples. He was all by himself. And he's going through Samaria, okay? Remember when I said he's probably peopled out and wanted to just hang out, but then why is he going through Samaria? Because he knows there's someone that he needs to talk to at this point. And he encounters a woman. Think about Jewish times. He encounters not only an adulterous woman, right, who has had five husbands. And I don't know if you guys have heard this preached before when he says, you've rightly said, when she, he tells her to go bring your husband. And he says, she says, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right. You, you don't have a husband. The man you're living with right now is also not your husband. What's implied in the Greek there, what Jesus was saying is, yeah, he's not your husband. He's someone else's. So, I mean, there's a lot going on in there. And think about when he's talking about the living water. You know, I will give you living water. And she's thinking, hot dog, I never have to come to this stupid well anymore, right? I don't have to carry these heavy buckets of water in the heat. And Jesus isn't like, no, he's not getting exacerbated. He's not getting super frustrated with her. He says, no, I'm talking about your soul. I'm talking about the living waters that will feed you for eternity or quench your thirst for eternity. And you can see the passion and just the love that even Christ has in presenting the gospel himself. And that's where we need to be. We can't use apologetics. We can't use the scriptures to just beat someone over the head and then hope for the best. We can't have our end goal of just being able to win arguments and then that's that. I told you all those years ago, God uh, chased me big time about that one. Who cares about me winning an argument? The whole point was for someone to hear the gospel and then eventually get saved and they have glory in, in heaven with the rest of us. Yes? Some planteth, some water, right. some picks the fruit. Yep, exactly. And we're not responsible for what the condition of the soil is that the seed is thrown on. No. And even Jesus, not everybody who followed him believed. Right. I mean, the rich, the rich young ruler yep. came and Jesus said, because again, he spoke to their heart, just like he did to the Samaritan woman. But their responses were very different. Yes, yeah, they were extremely different. Alrighty guys, again, I promise we'll get into the, the, the juicy, you know, meat stuff of apologetics. We will, we will get into that. But I wanted to bring the point of why we're doing this. It's for that. It's so we can go and preach the gospel. That is the whole reason. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, um, just for your word and your mercy. God, we thank you for salvation. What an amazing gift that you've given us. And we just pray now, as we go throughout our week, um, that you'd be able to give us those opportunities where we can preach the gospel and we can do it in a way that's uh, glorifying to you. In Christ's name I pray, Lord. Amen.